Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Big vaccine news this week as all the approvals are making their way through for the Pfizer vaccine, and it will soon start making its way through the U.S., but some of the biggest hurdles still to overcome are mistrust in both the government and the vaccines themselves. Polls are showing that many still don't want to take the vaccine as soon as it is available. For more on how many people want to take the wait-and-see approach with the COVID vaccine, we'll speak to Ian Duncan, reporter at The Washington Post. We went out and we, we actually asked people to write into us and give us their thoughts on whether they were really enthusiastic and eager to get this or whether, like you say, they were sort of waiting to see. And we just tried to speak to as many people as we could in kind of different walks of life and people who might have reason to be among the first, people who work in healthcare, then people who work in sort of like critical industries. And like you say, I mean, people's thoughts are all over the place on this. You have some people who are just sort of sick and tired of being locked down and ready to get on with their lives and they see the vaccine as the only real way that that's going to happen. And you have people who I, I find really interesting who are sort of so ground down by this experience of the last nine months or so that they're just not really ready to believe that anything is going to be the answer. And they're worried that this vaccine has been developed very quickly and not confident in its safety, I guess. So, yeah, it just this quite wide range and quite nuanced as well when you get into people's opinions and where they feel the way they do about it. Yeah, and, and that's a very important thing to note, really, is that once the vaccine does start getting rolled out, it's still not the end of the pandemic. It's going to take months for this to reach you know, the majority of people. I think Anthony Fauci has said that we need 70 to 75 percent of Americans to get vaccinated so that we can get back on that road to normalcy you know, for these people that are apprehensive about it, right? They say, I want to see how, how it's going to go for other people. Well, I mean, we're in overdrive with any news about a vaccine. So we're going to be hearing about it as people start getting it. But in a lot of communities of color, you know, black Americans, Latino Americans, in these communities specifically, there's a lot of apprehension to this. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is a lot to do with the kind of history of unethical medical research that has been, I guess these communities have been the victims of. And so there is a real skepticism and distrust of the kind of medical establishment. And, you know, talk to a doctor who serves a predominantly Latino community and she was just saying it's really heartbreaking because these are the kinds of communities that have often suffered the most with the vaccine, um, excuse me, with the virus, and they're the ones who might be the most hesitant about getting the vaccine. And she said, look, like, I am going to tell my patients I'm going to get this. My kids are going to get this. Like, it's it's safe. I'm really confident about it. But the research also shows that sort of this, this doctor is white and she's the doctor, so she's someone of sort of high social status. And so I'm not sure that the message is going to get through from me. And so the government knows this and they know it's a problem. There's plenty of data to sort of back up this idea. And they're trying to sort of find credible messengers and people who can do this work. I think the other thing here is that because people are going to be waiting for months to get this, there is this sort of hope that I think some in the government have that it will 
sell itself as time goes on that yeah. most people will have to wait and so there'll be a growing body of evidence before this really becomes widely available and so that it, this, this sort of snowball effect hopefully will just kind of carry people through yeah as much as we are pushing this through and you know trying to roll this out as quickly as possible it's going to take time and that i have that same exact sentiment i'm hoping that people will start to see it as it does roll out and just the confidence will grow but right now we look at some of the polls and people, uh, you know, maybe 51 percent, I think, in one poll of Americans said that they're likely to take the vaccine when it's available. And, and beyond that, we're talking about kind of, you know, the order in which people get these vaccines. So right now we're going to do people in nursing homes and healthcare workers. After that, who knows, right? Uh, maybe it could be first responders, things like that. And we get polls from the New York Fighter Fighters Association, a lot of them saying they won't get it right away. Uh, so these are all difficult things to square away. Yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, you, you are starting to see, I think the sort of the first groups that's been settled on and it seems fairly straightforward. It seems to make sense that people in nursing homes are so many people who died and people who are then on the front lines providing medical care to people. And then it does start to get a little bit stickier as it goes along. And then I guess there's a question of sort of how quickly the supply ramps up that you know, if you can move these groups pretty close together because there's plenty of vaccine, those things maybe are less contentious. But I think what we've started to see this week is that the supply might not come through quite as quickly as was initially anticipated. And so that then makes getting a higher spot on the queue, there's a little bit more of a premium on that then. Ian Duncan, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. This week, we also saw the rollout of the Pfizer vaccine in the UK, and all eyes were on them as two people came down with allergic reactions to the vaccine. It prompted British officials to advise those with serious allergies to avoid getting vaccinated for now. For more on how the vaccine rollout is going, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. They were in two people who had had previous severe allergic reactions. Both of them carry an EpiPen with them so that if they go into shock, they can shoot themselves in the leg and get some epinephrine to recover. So it's not clear whether they have had previous reactions to vaccines. Until yesterday in the UK, people were told if they'd had a previous reaction to a vaccine not to get this one. But now as of today, they're saying if you've had a previous severe reaction to anything, if you, if you carry an EpiPen with you, that you should not get this vaccine. In the U.S., Pfizer did not specifically test people who had severe previous reactions, and it's not clear whether the regulators who are meeting tomorrow to discuss it, how they will require people to take this vaccine, whether they will specify that people with severe allergic reactions should be covered or not. And that's the distinction right there, at least in the UK for now, is that if you're carrying an EpiPen, you shouldn't be taking this, right? Because they say people with severe allergies, well, you know, sometimes I get severe allergies when uh, you get a around a lot of dust or something like that. But this is something where right. you need an EpiPen, something that requires a lot of action, people that have a history of it, let's say. This is not, you know, a sneezing fit in the face of some dust. This is a really severe, somebody who's had a previous quite severe reaction and carries an EpiPen with them. In the U.S., I believe that figure is three or four million people. So it's not negligible, but it's also not not as common as seasonal allergies or whatever. And we've talked about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine before many times. They're made from mRNA. And uh, these types of vaccines don't have any, uh, you know, animal elements to it or anything like that. So as you mentioned, sometimes people in the past have been allergic to certain vaccines, but this technically, we don't know exactly, right, shouldn't have been a problem with these vaccines. 
That's what I had been told before. As you say, they're not made in eggs like the flu vaccine often is. They don't have preservatives in them. So they were expected to be less reactive for people who have allergies. Obviously, this changes that situation. It's not clear, again, what will happen going forward. I talked to somebody today who says the vaccine should be approved for everybody and then we'll just see what happens and that the company should track reactions as they occur and see how common they are. Let's say this could have been something that was maybe caught in a longer type of clinical trial setting or something. I noted in your article that uh, I guess four people in the trials who received this vaccine also developed Bell's palsy. They don't know if that was by chance or because of the vaccine at all. Right. So there are always reactions to vaccines. Any medication causes some side effects. So they expected to see something. They did not see any super severe reactions. Nobody died. Nobody ended up in the hospital in the U.S. trials. But they did see a couple of unusual situations. These cases of Bell's palsy, which is a neurological condition, could have happened by chance or they could have been caused by the vaccine. Again, this is why regulators will probably most likely ask the companies to follow people for some period of time after the vaccine is authorized to make sure that these aren't cropping up more than they should be in the general population. And as we expand from the Pfizer vaccine had 40,000 people and 44,000 people in it, half of whom got the active vaccine and half who got the placebo. So we know there aren't common serious reactions, but there are probably some uncommon serious reactions that will happen as these vaccines are rolled out to hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world. The UK is moving pretty fast. Obviously, thousands of people have already gotten the vaccine since it started being distributed right. on Tuesday. I mean, these are only two examples of a, of a bad reaction to this. That's not terrible. That's not a bad number, right? You are correct. It's, again, to be expected that some people will have reactions and people who have had previous serious reactions should be careful. But for the rest of us, the safety profile is extremely good. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. And now a story about a Chinese spy targeting California politicians. Between 2011 and 2015, a Chinese intelligence operative named Christine Fong developed extensive ties with local and national politicians, including California Congressman Eric Swalwell. For more on how this Chinese spy operated and was rooted out, we'll speak to Zach Dorfman, senior staff writer at the Aspen Institute and author of the Axios Codebook newsletter. Christine Fong was a student at a Bay Area university from roughly 2011 to 2015. Well, she was a student. Sources told us that she was in her late 20s, early 30s at the time. And she was incredibly active in local student groups. And she started developing, first via those groups, uh, connections to local Bay Area politicians, city council people, mayors, congressional candidates, sitting Congress people, people who eventually would run and, and win congressional races like Representative Swalwell and Representative Rokana. And the U.S. counterintelligence officials believed that she was, in fact, operating as an asset of China's main civilian intelligence service, which is called the Ministry of State Security, and that her purpose for being in the country and developing all these connections was to make those inroads with local politicians and both collect intelligence and information on them and then also potentially steer people in a more pro-China direction, although it doesn't appear that the operation proceeded for long enough to really do that in any substantial way. She was involved in you know, helping create like a sister city between a local Bay Area city and a city in mainland China. But you know, that's the kind of core of 
the investigation that the U.S. intelligence officials launched was because she was gaining so much access to local Bay Area politicians. I mean, as things progressed, she started engaging in fundraising activities, not necessarily cutting checks herself. There's no record in SEC filings of her doing so, but of working as a bundler. And a bundler is somebody who helps connect potential donors to candidates. So that can be a very powerful and influential position because you can be facilitating these connections that end up opening up new donor networks and communities to politicians. One of the notes that you had in your article, which just totally makes sense and pops when you hear it, you know, the Chinese Communist Party knows that today's mayors and city council members are tomorrow's governors and members of Congress, just like Eric Swalwell. He even ran for president. You know, he didn't make it too far, but... What if? And they're gaining information, private, maybe not classified information, but private information about their actions, their habits, all that stuff. Well, I think that's a really important point. And that really speaks to the nature of what U.S. counterintelligence officials believe is China's strategy, which is that you start at the local level because local politicians, you know, today's mayors or city council people can be governor, senator, the incoming vice president of the United States. I'm saying these as examples because Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. She's from San Francisco. Dianne Feinstein is from San Francisco. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is from San Francisco. And Kamala Harris was San Francisco district attorney. So those folks are not a part of this story at all, but it's just illustrative in terms of the fact that all of these very, very powerful national politicians got their start in Bay Area politics. And so it makes sense if you're willing to invest people over the long term. Now, of course, many or most of those folks that you speak with that, you know, your local you know, mixers in the Bay Area are not going to become the next vice president or the next governor. But it's very possible that one or two might become quite prominent. And that happened with Congressman Swalwell, where when Christine Fong met him, according to the evidence that we've seen, both you know photographic evidence and conversations with sources, where he was a, a city council person in a mid-sized city in the Bay Area, and he had a real meteoric rise. You know, he became a congressperson, and then he got a seat on the House Intelligence Committee, which is one of the most sensitive positions you can have in Congress. And so, there's absolutely no. And I need to I need to underscore this. There's absolutely no evidence that Congressman Swalwell did anything wrong. Once the FBI alerted him to their suspicions about this person, his office broke ties with her immediately. But it's more important as a lesson about how the Chinese intelligence services do what they do. Back to Christine Fong a little bit. How did her cover work? Because she infiltrated a lot of these campaigns, obviously got very close to people. They said she also might have engaged in sexual or romantic relationships with at least two mayors of Midwestern cities. I think the FBI caught her, or U.S. intelligence caught her on video, Not maybe not performing the acts, but getting involved in some of these acts. So how did the cover work, and, and how did it all end? Because she left the country and, and severed a lot of ties with the people she cultivated these very relationships with. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there. I mean, on your, on your first question, what I would say is that, I mean, she was operating as a covert Chinese intelligence asset and that she was not walking around saying, hi, I'm actually, I'm, I'm Christine. I'm, and I want to say again, these are the suspicions or allegations of U.S. intelligence officials, but she was not representing herself as an overt representative of the Chinese government. So the connections she was building, you know, she was doing so in a way that was not clear 
on the ultimate objective of them. However, you know, her strategy was to become involved in local politics and to get involved in civic participation through student groups and a group called the PAPA, which is a civic organization that is based in Sacramento and Washington, D.C., whose mission is a laudable one, and that's to get Asian Americans more involved in politics. You know, that's kind of the complexity of this story, right? It's because she was using avenues for things that are unambiguously good, which is trying to encourage civic participation for groups and individuals, in particular in the Bay Area. And you have to step back and understand, too, that there's a long history of anti-Asian and particularly you know, anti-Chinese discrimination in the Bay Area. So you have groups that are trying to encourage more civic participation, which is a really, really good thing. But then you have somebody using those vectors or those avenues to try and do things that are a little bit more covert and potentially operate on behalf of a, of a foreign government. You know, there's a little bit of ambiguity in how she left. You know, as you mentioned before, at some point, during her period here from 2011 to 2015, the FBI caught wind of what was going on and its suspicions. From our reporting, it was from her contacts with a Chinese diplomat based in San Francisco, who was actually, you know, according to the suspicions of FBI investigators, was an undercover intelligence officer, you know, an MSS officer. So they started looking at Christine because she had had some kind of interaction with this individual who they already believed was operating as a Chinese spy. But this person was, again, they were operating under diplomatic cover. And, you know, eventually there was electronic surveillance. And this electronic surveillance did pick up her, you know, engaged in some kind of sexual act with a mayor from a Midwestern city. And there's also evidence of that she had a romantic or sexual relationship with at least one other Midwestern mayor. That's an intensive investigation where you start putting the time and resources into electronic surveillance of of somebody. It it means the bureau is quite serious. There's a lot of legal steps that are required to have something like that occur. And then by 2015, she was supposed to go to a conference um, in Washington, D.C., another civic conference. She traveled all over the country and met with mayors and local officials all over the country. This was part of what she did. And this was part of what U.S. investigators believe was done as part of her activities as a potential Chinese operative. And we spoke to somebody who said that all of a sudden she said, I can't make it. And she just went back to China and has not been seen in the United States since. And we spoke to four current and former U.S. intelligence officials for the story. We spoke to over 20 people, current and former Bay Area politicians, political operatives, students, all kinds of folks. And on the community side of this, people said she just disappeared. One day she was everywhere, and then one day she just disappeared. And so for some people, that was a really distinct memory, right? Because imagine somebody who is so involved in local politics, and you see them at all these events and everywhere, and they're networking, and they're active, and then they're just gone. And for a lot of people, that was the last memory they had of her until two journalists from Axios came knocking. Zach Dorfman, senior staff writer at the Aspen Institute and author of the Axios Codebook newsletter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.